Good morning. Has anybody read the Ultimate Prescription yet by Jim Markham? Got a couple of hands. Couple of hands. Pardon? Yes, uh, I, I encourage you to get it and read it. Have you enjoying it? Those who've reading it, uh, and um, you will find that it is from a cardiologist perspective. Uh, taking and presenting the same truths that we value and cherish in this class. Our, our ministry and his ministry, HeartWise Ministries, have joined together. Starting next month, we're going to start doing some television programs that will be broadcasting into approximately 200 million homes uh, across the nation. And uh, Dr. Markham is going to come in uh, sometime here in the next few weeks and give you guys an update on exactly all the things that our class is supporting and helping the open happen. And he's going to need some volunteers from our class to come in and answer phones because we're going to have a live television program and uh, people are going to call in and we'll need some phone volunteers and some other volunteers uh, coming up once a week. So we're very, very pleased to be working with Dr. Markham. So I encourage you to get his book. You can get it at uh, Barnes & Noble here in town. It's on the shelves. Or um, you can go and order it off Amazon.com, The Ultimate Prescription. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. As we talk about this concept of judgment, we pray that your uh, spirit will be with us to give us wisdom and discernment and good judgment as we uh, explore this concept. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our quarterly glimpses of God. And the title this week is The God of Grace and Judgment. And this week we are talking about judgment. And I want to ask right up front, with what lens do we look at this concept through? Do we look through the lens of imperial Roman imposed law? And if we do, how do we understand judgment? Or do we look through the lens of the law of love that God built his universe to operate upon. And if we do, how do we understand judgment? And does it make a difference? Did I confuse you or do you understand the question? Imperial Rome imposes law upon its subjects, and if that's how we look, we look through that lens at the concept of judgment, what do we come up with? Notice that the word judgment is printed quite large on that page. That may give you an idea of what Lesson is going to approach. Yes, yes, it, absolutely. Um, and the reason I ask you about which, are we going to look at it through which law? Uh, there's a little quote I came across in the book, Great Controversy 582. It says, The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. So do we look at it through the, the Roman human law construct? Do we look at it through the eternal design protocols God built his universe to run upon? Which law do we use as we understand the concept of judgment? And does it make a difference? So as we go through the lesson, you're gonna, I'm going to bring you back to those two lenses over and over again and see if you can notice a difference uh, in the two. Further, as we consider this idea of judgment, judgment, the word, can have multiple meanings. It can mean a judicial finding. It can mean an accurate diagnosis. It can mean the mental ability of discernment. Hey, he's got good judgment. Or a decision between various alternatives. Or an event in time, the judgment. So the word judgment can have potential different connotations, and we need to have some discernment or judgment in how we interpret the judgment. Additionally, when we consider the judgment, we must ask, who is being 
judged. Who is being judged? And for what purpose? For what purpose? So what are the possibilities as you think about who is being judged? What are the possibilities that who is being judged and by whom? Well, the obvious one that most people start from, the, the, the default position is God sits in judgment over created beings, both angels and human beings. That's, that's one possibility of, of who's being judged and by whom. But there's another, and that is created beings sit in judgment of created beings. And have you heard that one? And there's a third, that created beings sit in judgment of God. I was doing a little bit of study this week uh, off of what I was dealing with, the word condemnation in the in the Bible. I know that's something that you've discussed quite a bit in your class here. Um, whenever I looked up the word condemnation in the Greek, Hebrew, the word that's used in the King James Version is interpreted 42 times to be judgment. And only two times condemnation. So I was a bit uh, curious to see what you might say to that, but when it fits. Okay, all right, let's keep that in mind. Um, I think some people, depending on the translation, may choose the idea of to condemn rather than to make a discernment or a judgment. So, the possibilities. God sitting in judgment, created beings sitting in judgment of created beings, or created beings sitting in judgment of God, or all three. All three happening. For what purpose? If you think about those three, three possibilities, then think through those three possibilities and think, well, if God is sitting in judgment of created beings, for what purpose would that be? Well, is he judging so that he can hand out proper rewards of eternal life and crowns of glory and or proper punishments of the appropriate numbers of seconds in the torment before he kills you? He has to have a judgment to determine those things. If that were the case, which lens, which law would be in operation if you interpret judgment this way? The natural law upon things were built to run or an imposed law where we have to have a judge evaluate and determine rewards and punishments? So get this idea. As soon as you go down the line of God sits in judgment to determine these things, it's a tacit acknowledgement that you've accepted Roman imperial law constructs for God. If we are judging God, the purpose? Is he trustworthy? Remember the example we've given him before. If somebody lies to your married person and somebody tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, but your spouse is loyal and faithful, but you believe the lie. And now you believe your spouse is cheating. And so you move out. But your spouse is loyal and faithful. And your spouse is loving and true. And your spouse is forgiving. And your spouse understands you have been the victim of a liar. And your, your spouse wants you back. What will they have to do in order to get you back if you believe they've been cheating? Won't they need to persuade you or prove to you that they haven't been cheating? They'll have to extract or purge the lie from your mind with the truth, meaning that they're on trial. They have to prove themselves, even though they've done nothing wrong. This is God's position. He's been lied about, done nothing wrong. We believe the lies, but he loves us. He wants us back. So... We are judging God to determine whether we can trust Him or not, just as you would judge your spouse to determine whether they really are a cheat or not a cheat. 
And then, what about another purpose? To diagnose our actual condition. To diagnose. And what would be the purpose of God diagnosing us? David praying, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create a clean heart in me, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So to diagnose, he looks to diagnose us for the purpose of healing and restoration. And then if that's the case, then what lens are we looking through? The natural, God's law that he built his universe to run upon. So let's look at, with this in mind, with this kind of, uh, uh, the two lens, I want you to kind of discipline yourself to look through. Let's, let's look at the lesson, Sabbath lesson. It says, a soldier stood next to an old man about to be executed. He was guilty of being the wrong race and religion, nothing more. As the soldier raised his gun, his victim said, do you know that there is a God in heaven who sees all this and who will one day judge you for your actions? The soldier then shot the old man dead. This is, in many ways, a prime example of secular society. Not a secular government, a government that does not promote one religion over another, but a secular society, one in which there is no higher standard than the rules of the society itself. It's a society with no sense of transcendence, no sense of higher authority, no sense of God or or a moral standard greater than anything human. It's a society where humans take the place of God, a society where the only judgment one faces is the judgment of one's peers or or one's own conscience, whatever, whatever's left of it anyway. According to the Bible, however, the old man was right. There is a God in heaven, and he knows all things, and he indeed will bring everything into judgment. When you hear this story, which lens are you hearing? Imposed law or God's natural law? And when you first heard it, didn't part of you go, wow, that's right. That's right. Didn't your heart kind of resonate? Yep, God's gonna, you're doing me wrong and God's going to get you. Isn't that how we've been raised to think? Is that really the case? Well, what happens in the mind, heart, and character of a person who perpetrates evil upon another person? Sears the conscience. Yeah, can you actually do evil against another person without simultaneously damaging yourself? This is God's natural law, the way he designed us to run. And in fact, who gets damaged worse? The person who got shot. Remember Christ said, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul. What's the Greek word for soul? Psyche. Psyche. Your, your mind, your character. You see, somebody can, can uh, kill the body, but an external person cannot damage your psyche, your, your, your soul, your character. That requires your choice. But when you perpetrate evil upon another person, what's happening to your soul? It's being warped. It's being changed. It's being transformed in a negative way. And so we read out of a book called Selected Messages, First Selected Messages 235. One of the founders of our church put the process this way. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner works in him a change of character and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Which lens, which law lens is that looking through? Do you see the clear difference between that and, well, when you do wrong, God's going to hold you accountable. He's got a judgment. He's going to bring you into judgment. He's going to whip out a punishment on you. Do you agree with this description that I just read out of First Selected Messages? 
You see, when one accepts the truth that God is a God of love, but also then accepts the idea of an imperial Roman law concept, then there are always inherent contradictions in the theology. And, they, and, and you will see these contradictions come out as they try to, to merge this imposed law concept with a God of love, and it never works. I'm going to show you in just a second. Yes, Wendell. It's also interesting that this whole concept which we talk about this lesson about judgment, we think about, okay, this is judgment, pre-advent judgment, or just, and then once the, the earth is made new, there won't be a purpose for these, this terrible judgment to, to happen anymore. In Matthew 19, then Peter said in reply, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is in the new world. This is not at the end of time to decide punishment or whatever else. This is in the new world. So what purpose would you have to judge if all you're judging is bad things and error, etc.? And what do you think that means there? I think there will be good administrators. Uh, so one possibility is just, uh, you know, as Adam was given dominion over the earth and told to rule over it, one is just the, the uh, judgments of good care, good wisdom, and those types of things. Um, one could also, though, suggest that it also means that through all eternity future, there will be a reflection back on the events of planet Earth. And we will constantly be delving deeper into Christ's accomplishments here and making judgments about the meaning of what transpired here. So we never stop learning from the events of Earth as we judge Israel, so to speak. We're judging the lessons of, of planet Earth. It's not just to implement laws. Oh, there's be lawbreakers in heaven. No, exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. One thing that I found interesting this week in connection kind of with this idea is it's not a new concept, but it was in the science, medical science news this week about a new study that says you actually can die of a broken heart. What it meant was you can die of a severe emotional experience. And I think that's consistent with this. That was talking to a broken heart due to loss, but dying of a severe emotional experience. I think when we come face to face with who we are, we can't hide from it anymore. We can't keep it in this cloudy fog in our minds, but it's right there in front of us, whether it's a video presentation of our lives and all of the things that we've done. Unless we've been healed of that, to me, that's judgment. That's a time that we're going to look something straight in the eye and probably die. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I really do. I think that's r r right on. So this, this idea, if we accept God as love, and we also accept and impose law, inherent contradictions, let's look, let's look at uh, Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, Judgment and salvation reflect twin aspects of God's character, his justice and grace. Thus, we should not pit the idea of judgment against the idea of salvation any more than we should pit the idea of God's justice against his grace. To do so is to rob both of their fullness and, and mutual complementarity. Scripture teaches both. Hence, we need to understand both. Then jump to Thursday's lesson and look at the two paragraphs beginning with the second. It says, if God is just, and if justice was the only major attribute, who among us would stand before him? 
If the Lord knows even our secret things, our secret deeds, not to mention what we have done in public, what chance would even the godliest among us have for the day, excuse me, on the day of judgment when all things are to be revealed? Fortunately, though, our God is also a God of grace. The whole plan of salvation was established so that every human being could ideally be spared the condemnation that God's justice would demand. Without grace, we'd all be consumed by God's justice. Our only hope, then, uh, then standing before a, a just God is grace. Now, to me, I heard contradiction. Yeah. Did you hear it? Our only hope is knowing that that's not us anymore. Yeah, go ahead. It seems to me that when we talk about stuff like this, we're literally just splitting God. Um, and we're creating a conflict in him. You know, so how can he be a God that is you know, at harmony with himself and be, have this inner conflict? That's exactly how I heard it as well. And what I want to show you is why this happens. It happens when you believe God is love, but you also believe he's like a Roman emperor and imposes law. And then you try to merge those two and make them work together. They can't work together. And so there's always these contradictions that come up like this. Yes. The concept that I'm looking at in my life recently is that when we look at the judgment and we look at our part in the judgment, whenever we are uh, spending this thousand years... Uh, with God, we're looking at God more than we're looking at anything else. And it's his character that is going to become more our character. And we're going to understand exactly why God did what he did. Not that we're looking in the lives of every other individual that's ever lived on planet Earth. I think, again, well said. Well said. So, what if we look at love and justice through the lens of God's natural law of love? Now we're looking at love and justice through that lens. What does it look like? Do we have contradictions? No, we have harmony. So the real problem with breaking God's law then, then is it that God gets mad and must punish to be just, or that our character, souls, and minds get damaged and destroyed? Do you see a difference? If we accept, though, this other impose law, then things begin getting mis misconstrued as we read Scripture. So let's look at Monday's lesson. And first paragraph, it says, Think about this. Before sin, there was no need of grace because there was nothing to forgive, nothing to be pardoned, nothing to cover. It's the same with judgment. Before sin, there was nothing to judge, not, nothing to condemn, nothing to punish. But grace and judgment arise at least in a human context only because of humanity's sin. What does this sentence reveal? Quote, Before sin, there was nothing to judge, nothing to condemn, nothing to be punished. Unquote. What does it reveal? Which lens? Think it through. What does this statement mean? Which lens? The natural law or an imposed law? It's an imposed law. This is what it's telling you. It's a tacit admission that they are viewing the Scriptures and viewing God's law through the, Ro the Roman imperial law construct. Oh, by the way, where does the idea that uh, sin must be punished originate? You see, this is before sin. Um, what's the sentence say? Nothing to be judged, nothing to be, done, nothing to be punished. So sin needs to be punished. And of course, uh, Desire of Ages 761, historic Adventist view, says... 
In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for sinners to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God were to remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This is Satan's argument, because he, he alleges that God is like a Roman emperor who imposes laws upon his creatures. If we look at the this through the lens of God's natural law, the template he designed life to operate upon, then we could read that same sentence this way. Before sin, there was nothing to diagnose. No, no terminal condition that condemns and nothing to heal. Do you hear the difference? Over here, yes. When I read that, it just seemed like something was wrong in that paragraph. Good for you, it was. And I started looking up and in Christ's object lessons, it says, to learn of Christ means to receive his grace, which is his character. Beautifully. Beautifully so said. If you substitute character up in that paragraph in, in place of grace, they're saying that there was no need of, of uh, God having a character. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, if you do your homework, yes. I was just going to say the same thing. I struggled with that paragraph before I got to the idea of judgment. To say there's no need of grace, I didn't look it up in Christ Object Lessons, but I looked it up in the dictionary, and grace, as far as we understand it, means favor, and that's the same way it was interpreted in the concordance. We've always needed God's favor. That's just, you have to have, I have to have your favor, and you have to have mine to have a relationship. Let me make this very clear. Imposed law requires punishment when you break it the break of the natural law requires healing see the difference break an imposed law you must punish break a natural law you must heal that's the difference we've substituted the wages as punishment in that verse yes said wages is punishment Yes, he said we've, we've substituted from like Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We've suggested that the wages then are punishments rather than results or what you've earned. The wages of, you know, Walmart is whatever, and who pays the wage? Walmart pays its own wage. The wages of sin is death. Sin pays its wage. Okay, it's the consequence of being out of harmony. So once we go down this idea of having looked through this lens of imposed law, we start misunderstanding Scripture. Verse 15 in the first gospel promise, as soon as he declared his judgment against the serpent, he then immediately gives his first message of grace, of redemption, of salvation for humanity. And only then, only after the gospel promise, does he start declaring his judgments against the woman and against the man. Well, I'm going to challenge this whole concept that there were judgments against the serpent, judgments against the woman, and judgments against the man. This is coming through this law. When you break an imposed law, then punishments are required. And so God here, through this lens, is doing something against them. I'm going to suggest to you, in fact, it's the opposite, that he's operating through his natural law that he designed life to operate upon, and when they broke it, God makes a diagnosis and begins intervening therapeutically, his judgment, ah, this, my judgment is, this is what's best to heal and save. And what you're going to find, I'm going to walk through every one of these and show you that every one of his interventions here in Genesis were not punishments, but were therapeutic interventions to save mankind. And I saw a couple of hands before I show you. Yes, Wendell. These really don't have to be 
interventions, though. These could be natural consequences of breaking God's law. The serpent going from a flying being to a crawling being? Yes. Natural consequence? It can be. Just like death is a natural consequence of sin, the the pain of childbirth, these other things, etc., can be natural consequences of going outside of God. I think I think so forth. The nat- the, the childbirth one, also the the um, toil and can also be natural consequences. I'm, I'm stretching my mind. I can imagine a scenario where the serpent suddenly loses its wings and its legs and starts crawling on its belly, but um, it's harder for me to imagine. How sudden do we know it was, though? Do you think it was that, that we had flying serpents all the way up to the flood? Well, I was just reading this week about um, studies that they've done on the salmon that swim upstream and how they change in one generation in in an artificial setting rather than actually sure. upstream. I think, I think can, things can change. Adaptations can arise very quickly. No, no the, we, we've gone through that many times in here. Those epigenetic changes can happen very quickly. Um, I actually think, though, that um, some of these things might have been interventions on God's part, therapeutic, and or denouncing it, but I think they're therapeutic. Um, and I'm going to show you why. The, the idea... The idea that the lesson suggests through the lens of an imposed law was that God was making a judgment against the serpent. And it was punishing the serpent. I've heard it described this way, to make the serpent be punished um, for this. If that's the case, let's ask some questions. First off, was the serpent capable of moral decision-making? Was the serpent made in God's image and given dominion over the land? Was the serpent instructed by God not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Was the serpent warned that if it ate of the, knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it would either die or crawl on its belly for, for the rest of its life on earth? No. Then how can one possibly suggest that God was punishing this, this dumb animal for being used by the second most intelligent, or the most intelligent created being in the universe? It makes no sense to me whatsoever that this was punishment. So then what was it? A therapeutic intervention for whose need? Not for the serpent's need. For our need, for humanity's need. And what's the message? I think there's a very powerful message here. And the message is clear. If you cooperate with Satan and let him have control of your mind, you will be degraded. You will end up crawling around in the dirt and be despised of others. Is there any evidence that this is true? Can you think of a Bible story where this is in fact true? Nebuchadnezzar is a great example. I thank you very much. I didn't think of that one. I thought of the demoniacs. Remember the demoniacs, their minds were being controlled by demons. And they were crawling around literally, and living in caves and in the dirt. And they were despised of everyone. This is what happens. If you let your mind be controlled by the evil one, you will be degraded down to nothing. A brute beast, a creature of instinct, as Peter talks about. And I think God is giving an object lesson here for our, for our, for our understanding. Don't let your mind be controlled by the evil one. And so was the demoniacs that ended up with their minds controlled by demons, were they in the caves, running around like brute beasts as a punishment from God? Did he do that to them? Then I would suggest neither was the actions against the serpent a punishment. Maybe a consequence Hmm. of what happens when your mind is controlled by the evil one. So what about the increased pain in childbearing? What does Scripture say is the reason for increased pain in childbearing, or at least childbearing? There's a passage in Timothy, if anybody's familiar with it. It says, A woman 
will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What does it mean? What is, she has no, no idea. See, I think again, was the increased pain punishment or part of a therapeutic intervention or natural consequence that can be used therapeutically because uh, when you touch a hot stove and you get the natural consequence of pain, that pain is therapeutic because it causes you to pull your hand back very quickly to minimize the damage. Either way, what, what is the lesson here? In the creation narrative, when it brings up this uh, problem that arose and we ended up being given these pains... They were for man's benefit they were given. That's exactly what we're pointing at. Exactly right. And so, what, what is the metaphor of salvation? Nicodemus, talking to Jesus. Jesus said, unless a man is born again. Now, do you think that this childbearing experience has any objective lesson, an object lesson, to teach us about the sinner being born again? Is it painful to be born again, guys? Is it a painful process to go through that valley of the shadow of death, that, that Jacob's night of wrestling, Peter's night of misery after he denies his Lord, that place where you are brought to your knees and fall on the rock and are broken? Is that a painful process to be born again? But after that pain, after that pain of labor, after that pain of conversion, is there joy, just like in the birth of a child? And what about the birth of the incarnate Savior? We were promised a child will be born. Do you think this was a painful process for God to go through for our salvation? But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So I think there are many object lessons in this process that are designed to keep, in, keep us in our mind the process of what sin has done, that we are sick, we are dying, and the only way forward is to be willing to go through a process that's painful. And I'm going to tell you in my working with people in my office, the biggest obstacle I have to help many of my patients get well is they are not willing to endure discomfort. But there's a law, it's a natural law, that once brokenness has happened, you have a broken bone, you've broken your leg, once there's brokenness, there is no direction you can go that's pain-free. If you avoid going to the doctor, you won't let them do, put pins in, you won't uh, go to physical therapy because all those things are painful, if you, so you just allow the bone to stay the way it is, you will stay in chronic pain and disability. But if you go through the therapeutic process of having the surgery, going to physical therapy, that process also is painful. Once there's brokenness, there is no pathway forward that's pain-free. Most of my patients don't understand this, and so they take initial reactions are to avoid pain, and so they take avenues that are trying to soothe emotional pain rather than standing their ground and working through the pain to ultimately find healing. This is a spiritual issue as well. We are broken. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Our hearts are not right with the Lord. And that process of conversion, falling down on the rock to be broken, is a painful process, is it not? It's heart-wrenching process. Yet, coming out the other side, we come out renewed, restored, holy, healthy, healed. The pain goes away. We can stand on our own two feet again in the way God designed us with self-control and self-governance, fruits of the Spirit. But this process, people are sometimes unwilling to do because they want to avoid discomfort. Yes, I saw a hand somewhere. 
Well, I was yes. going to add to your list of texts. Um, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come. As soon as the child is born, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And where's the reference? And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. <laughs> it's in John 16. John 16. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, another... It's that whole sequence. Exactly. Thank you so much. It's exactly right. So I don't see this as, again, as a, a judgment against the woman. I see this, again, as God's good judgment intervening in ways that are helpful to us and or potentially natural consequences, but then he understands those consequences and interprets them in a way that are going to be therapeutic for us. What about the subordination of Eve to Adam? You will be in subject to your husband. He will rule over you. Remember that, women. What was this punishment? Well, here's out of... uh, Here's out of a book called Conflict and Courage by one of the founders of our church. He said this, Eve was told of the sorrow and pain that must henceforth be her portion. In the creation, God had made her the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, the great law of love, they, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. But sin had brought discord. Now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by the submission of the part of one to the other. Why? Well, because under the natural law of love, you know, every, the, the heart is for the other. Adam's willing to sacrifice himself to promote the health and happiness of Eve. Eve receives the love, sacrifices herself for Adam. A perpetual circle of giving and love, harmony, equality. But now their hearts are not lo- love-motivated. They're self-centered. It's all about me. It's fear, insecurity, what I can get out of it. And so two selfish hearts, what kind of harmony will there be? There won't be. There'll be constant conflict and fighting. And so... God takes an action to cause women to have a greater heart's motivation for relationship than men. They're more relational oriented. Right? Her desire will be for her husband is what it says. The Hebrew word S-H-U-Q means a violent craving for a thing. That a woman will have an intense craving for that relationship enough Strong enough that she's willing to sacrifice herself to stay in union rather than to stand up for her rights, uh, which the men are more frequently willing to do. <laughs> you see? No, this is true. Okay? And neurobiologically, the part of our brain where we have this relational connection, this desire to be this empathic, other-centered, loving emotion, where it comes, it's called the anterior cingulate cortex. This is where we experience this, and this is the part of, in this part of the brain, women have larger anterior cingulate cortexes than men. Yeah, she believes that. (laughs) It's true. Women are by nature more relational than men. Okay, I think this was an intervention on God's part. But notice, as God, ha- this is not as part of His original design. It's a intervention, a therapeutic. It was not a punishment to sustain relationships long enough for God to work in the hearts of man here and now. We are to have our hearts renewed, to be reborn, to be to have the law written on the heart and mind here and now. And when that happens, then the husband is to love his wife like. Christ loved the church, sacrificing himself for her. And the wife is to submit to that kind of treatment. She submit to Christ-like treatment, not blind, abusive control. Because if she loves her husband, then when he is mistreating and abusing her, she's recognizing, wow, every time he sins against me, 
Every sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it easier for him to sin again. She's recognized every time he sins against me, he's searing his conscience. He's warping his character. He's moving himself further and further away from heaven. I love him too much to stand by quietly and not stand up, not for my rights, but for his soul. And so it's not this submission of domination. It's submission in love is what God designed this to be. So I don't understand, again, the, uh, the submission of woman to man as a punishment. And what about for the increased work to get f- produce from the earth? This is out of, again, Conflict and Courage, page 18. It says, When God made man, he made him ruler over the earth and all living creatures, so long as Adam remained loyal to heaven and all nature was in subjection to him. But when he rebelled against the divine law, the inferior creatures were in rebellion against his rule. Perfect object lesson. This world is a microcosm to the to a, a lesson book, to th- a theater to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4 9. And, and Adam and Eve represent the Godhead. And so when Adam and Eve re- rebelled against God, the lower creatures re- rebelled against them. It's a perfect object lesson. <clears throat> It says, and the life of toil and care, which was henceforth to be man's lot, was appointed in love. It was a discipline rendered needful by his sin to place a check upon the indulgence of appetite and passion, to develop habits of self-control. It was a part of God's great plan for man's recovery from the ruin and degradation of sin. So again, if you look at it through the lens of imposed law, God punished them. If you look at it through the lens of God's natural law, he intervened in love to put in a therapy that would help them along the way to be reconciled back and healed to God's ideal. Yes, Russell. Yeah, even Scripture says the ground shall be cursed for your sake. Yes. I mean, right there it's telling you that it's a therapeutic intervention. Exactly. So what makes sin sin? Is it because God said don't do it? Or does God say don't do it because it's sin? Let me word it another way. Is sin inherently wrong and destructive and thus God in love says don't do it? Or is sin inherently not destructive and only becomes wrong because God says don't do it and the destruction comes out from God as punishment? You see the difference? Let's jump to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson. Revelation 14.7 Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. What does this mean? You might have heard that text somewhere before. What does it mean? Does the Revelation passage refer to God sitting in judgment of us? Or is it the time when God submits himself to our judgment? The hour of his judgment has come. Which lens do you look at this issue through? What did the war in heaven originate over? God's people. What did Lucifer in heaven do? What did Lucifer in heaven do to get a third of the angels to rebel against God? Yes, he told lies about God's character. It wasn't he didn't tempt him with the streets of gold, did he? No, it wasn't the stuff we call sins. There wasn't a heavenly prostitution ring or a drug drug ring or a marijuana plant going on in heaven. The stuff we call sin was not a temptation for the angels. He tempted them with distortions about God's character, with lies. And it says, of course, in, in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against, this is key, against what? The knowledge of God and take captive every thought. The war is always centered on who God is, the knowledge of God. That's it. 
thus life eternal, Jesus said in John 17, 3, is that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In Romans 3, Paul then says, and this is, I'm going to read it to you out of several versions. This is King James Version, Romans 3, verse 4. God forbid, yea, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. That's King James Version. Uh, New, New American Standard Bible says, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Good news say, says so that you must be shown right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. And the New Century Version, so that you will be shown to be right when you speak and that you will win your case. This is all about God. Paul understood that God had been alleged to be untrustworthy and that the issue will come down in the end. Who do you believe God to be? What is your judgment about God? When we understand that, we look back at Revelation 14. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Be in awe of God and let your life reflect His character. Remember His character's glory. So you will glorify Him as His character shines forth from you because He is being judged and as as your character reveals His, you demonstrate His method's work. Let me read you out of Desire of Ages 671. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of His love so that the Spirit, so the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing His grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of His people. What do you think that means? Do you think that's connected to Revelation 14? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. That His honor is tied up in your character. We are examined for the purpose of demonstrating the healing power of God in our lives. Yes? That's why the verse goes on to say, and worship Him in heaven and earth. Because to say, holy, O Lord, art thou just and righteous, is not something we do once. It's something we do all the time in everything. That the way we live is our worship. I like it. Revelation is also sharing with us that the judgment is on behalf of the saints. Yes, the judgment is on behalf of the saints. Daniel chapter 7 says that the little horn power made war against the saints until, and depending on your version, an NIV version will say until judgment was pronounced in favor of the saints. The King James Version says until judgment was given to the saints. And the Hebrew actually means to impart. To impart. And my suggestion, if you understand what is the war, remember the little horn is waging war against the saints. According to the scripture we just read, what kind of war is it? War of ideas. And we're waging war, not like the world does. Our weapons are, have divine power. We demolish strongholds. What, this, what, what are we demolishing? Everything is set itself up against? Knowledge. The knowledge of God. Okay? The little horn power is trying to get us to believe what kind of things about God. Lies, like maybe an imperial Roman law concept. Okay? Maybe that's what he's trying to get us to believe God is like. And thus, he is waging war and he's winning until... Daniel 7, 25, I believe it is, until 
judgment is imparted to the saints, given to the saints. In other words, until we gain judgment, discernment, wisdom, the ability to tell the truth from a lie, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, the, the, the uh, mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. We've developed that capacity. We see now the right from the wrong. He has no power over our minds when we uh, appreciate and judge rightly the truth. Yes. So the verse that says every act will come into judgment, that means that everything we do is a judgment of God? Let's jump to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Another book opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to that which they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So how do we understand what is recorded? What is recorded? Remember, we're going to be judged by what is recorded in the books. That's what it says, right? We're going to be judged by what's recorded in the books. Question, what's recorded in the books? (laughs) Very close. Very close. Not quite, but very close. Very, very close. This is out of a book called Maranatha, page 340. And this is how the founders of our church understood this. And I want you to listen to what's happening here. It's phenomenal, and it should, it should really humble us all. In the case of each individual, there is a process going forward which is far more wonderful than that which transfers the features to the polished plate of the artist. The art of the photographer merely imprints the likeness on perishable substance. But in the life record, the character is faithfully delineated. And this record, however dark, can never be effaced except by the blood of the atoning sacrifice. I'm going to read some more here, but I'm going to pause on that phrase because that phrase might throw some people off. Question, where is the blood of the atoning sacrifice applied? To the record books of heaven or to the heart and mind of the people? Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Thus, the way we efface a dark character out of the record book of heaven because the record book is recording your character is to partake of Christ here. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And as my character is transformed, then my record, which records my character, is transformed. Does that make sense? Okay, keep reading. Angels of God are taking a photog- uh, excuse me, angels of God are taking a photograph of the character just as accurately as the artist takes the likeness of the human features. And it is from this we are to be judged. When the judgment shall sit and the book shall be opened, there will be many astonishing disclosures. Men will not then appear as they appear to human eyes with finite judgments. Secret sins will then be laid open to the view of all. Motives and intentions which have been hidden in the dark chambers of the heart will be revealed. All will appear as a real-life picture. In that solemn and awful hour, the unfaithfulness of the husband will be open to the wife, and the unfaithfulness of the wife to the husband. Parents will then learn for the first time what was the real character of their children, and children will see the errors and mistakes that mark the lives of their parents. The man who robbed his neighbor through false representations is not to escape with his ill-gotten gains. God has an exact record 
in his books of every unjust account and every unfair dealing. I'm going to pause. Why does he have an exact record of every unjust account and every unfair dealing? Why? Where is it recorded? What's recorded in the record books? Your character. An exact representation. So if you carry unjustness in your character, it is exactly recorded there. Notice the very next verse, words, after we just read that he has an exact record of every unjust account, every unfair dealing. Very next words. Memory will be true and vivid in condemnation of the guilty one. What is it that condemns you? Your own memory. Your own memory. Who in that day... Memory will be true and vivid in condemnation of the guilty one who in that day is found wanting. The mind will recall all the thoughts and acts of the past. The whole life will come into review like a scenes of a panorama. Where is the condemnation coming from? From your very own condition. The point is, which lens is this describing it through? An imposed law about doing investigation, finding fault, imposing penalties, or a natural law of the way we are built and what condition we actually find ourselves in? And the consequences that come if we have in our hearts all this ugly stuff that we've never resolved and been transformed through God's grace to experience. Are there Bible texts to support this? And I want to give you a couple Bible texts to support this very concept that I just described. Here's one, Galatians chapter 6, 8. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. That's a very simple way of saying the exact same thing we just described here. But Christ goes a little further in his exploration of it. And he says this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. Now get this. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What is he saying? The very same thing we read in Maranatha. It's by your character. You are what you are. You've either accepted Christ, allowed the Holy Spirit to come in, write his law in your hearts and minds, come to love God and others more than self, been transformed in the inner person, or you have rejected that and you've clung to selfishness and exploitation of others and me first, and you are who you are. And that condition will be made plain on the day of judgment. And that condition of unholiness and unrighteousness, I've had patients who've been molested by their own parents. And many of them will say things like, I just wish my dad would admit what he did. Just, just admit it. And I said, let's take that at face value. Let's suppose that right here today that your dad admits exactly what he did. Won't he, if, he, if he's genuine, if he's honest, if he really admits it, won't he necessarily experience overwhelming guilt, shame, self-loathing, self-disgust? Won't that all be part of it if he's honest and really admits it? And he will still be today under the umbrella of God's grace. That experience will still have the Holy Spirit striving for his redemption. It will be buffered by God's love working in his heart, won't it? 
What will it be like for that same person who has never admitted the truth, who has lied, distorted, and twisted, denied and kept the reality of who their own character is away from their own awareness, what will be like on the day that they come face to face with themselves? And they see the full weight of who they are in reality. And they experience the full truth of what their own evil has caused others to experience. And they experience that without any opportunities for healing and restoration. And they do it in front of the entire onlooking universe exposed to, they're exposed to. Do you think that would be torment? Yes. Is this imposed? No. This is, we are who we are. We're either healed and restored or we find ourselves wanting. That's why Christ says in Revelation, let him who is righteous be righteous still. And let him who is wicked be wicked still. Yeah. So, then what, so why is all of this recorded in the records? Why do we have our characters recorded in the record books? What purpose do they serve? If the records are an accurate transcription of our characters, I can think of two purposes. And I love the first one. It's really exciting. To resurrect people. It's for our resurrection that these records are there to resurrect the dead. Here, let me give you this quote. This is out of um, Six Bible Commentary, page uh, 1093. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God, in his own time, will call forth the dead, giving, again, breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features, so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law in God's nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter that compose the body before death. So, what what is being said here? That our characters are stored with God, and he brings them back, and restores them. So we would just use modern language. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the hardware but can't destroy the software. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both hardware and software. When we die, the body is hardware. Your brain is hardware. It's all defective. we got all kinds of gene defects. This hardware goes in the grave. This turned to dust. God, when he comes back, he brings forth a brand new, perfect body. Not the same exact particles or atoms that were in our first body. Thank the Lord for that. And he makes us a brand new one and downloads our individuality. Our character is downloaded into this new body. And we're alive again as people. In new, in new. That's how I hear all this. Okay? So one reason for these records in heaven is to keep us preserved for the resurrection. Wow, now wait, wait, it cannot be. Those records are to punish us by. Those records are there, so we have a record to inflict punishment. What are you talking about? No, it's for our salvation. God is always for our salvation, for our healing, for our restoration. So one reason for the records is for our salvation. And the second reason, and I don't have time to read another quote, but there's another quote about the wicked in here that you can read later in the notes that talks about they come up out of the ground with the same current of thoughts that they went into the ground with and that's because they come up with the same characters but you can read that in the notes second reason is to the records are there not only for our resurrection but to vindicate god 
when I was a medical student, we had a, I was working in the emergency room at Erlanger, actually, and it's my fourth year of medical school, and there was a crash out at Level Field here in Chattanooga of a helicopter. And they brought all the helicopter crash victims to our ER, and we started working on all those victims with their broken bones and trauma injuries to save their lives. And one, and one lady that came to us had broken, uh, broken femurs, both of the big bones in her legs were broken, and fractured uh, pelvis. And uh, with these big uh, bone injuries like this, there can be bleeding into the tissues. Even though she didn't have skin breaks, she wasn't hemorrhaging outside her body. The blood was flowing into the tissue, so it was leaving her circulation system. And so she was really bleeding to death internally. And uh, we can save her. What she needs is she needs surgery, and she needs a blood transfusion. She gets there, she's awake. She's alert. We tell her this. She's Jehovah's Witness. Says she will not accept blood transfusion. Immediately, people start explaining things to her pleading with her, reasoning with her. Us little plebe little medical students were, were pleading with her. Nurses were pleading with her. Doctors were pleading with her. They had a hospital chaplain come and plead with her. A hospital administrator and a hospital attorney actually came down and talked with her uh, to try to get her. And this went on for several hours. And, and while this was happening, we put on those, those uh, pneumatic devices that, that, that put pressure on the lower extremities to try to keep her blood pressure up. And we were infusing just uh, blood expanders and volume expanders to try and keep her alive and doing all these things we could do. But there came a point when she lost consciousness and she couldn't be pled with anymore. So we stopped pleading at that point. Now, we didn't stop caring. We didn't stop working. We're doing everything we can to save her. She died. The entire time that this was going on, somebody was in there, there was one nurse assigned for one thing. Guess what her job was? To record everything. Her only job was to write down everything that was happening in that room. And, and she did. I mean, this, it was the most copious notes you could imagine going on in this situation. Now, what happens when all this is said and done and her family comes? Because she's the only one who died. Everybody else survived that crash and sues the hospital and the doctors for not saving her when they saved everybody else. What's going to come into evidence? The medical records will come into evidence. For what purpose? To judge and condemn and punish this woman? No, to exonerate the healthcare team that they did everything they could possibly do to save her. And that's the reason, another reason for the records in the eternal end for a person who might say, well, you saved them, but you didn't save these guys, God. You're arbitrary. You play favorites. The records will be opened and you will see exactly like we saw in this case that God was pleading at every moment, at every turn. He had every agency you could have for that person's salvation, working for that person. And that person just turned away, turned away, turned away. There was nothing more God could have done to save them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such extreme lengths to reach us and you have done everything in your power and still doing everything in your power to reach us. Sometimes we can be so dull, we can be so hard, we can be so so numb by this world that we don't even hear you speaking, Lord. Make our hearts sensitive. Let us hear your voice. Come in with your spirit, remove the the heart of stone and restore into us a heart of flesh that we will love you and love others. And that as we come to love you and love others, we can begin understanding more clearly your kingdom. Let our minds move away from this arbitrary, imposed law construct that makes us so afraid of you. And let us see you through the lens of Jesus, the law of love, that we can communicate clearly to those in our community around us the truth about your nature and character so that this message will go to the world and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.